welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where the answer to every single question is It Is Complicated, including the title of the podcast, which is It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. And hello, Dr. Joe. Hello. Hi. This is very exciting. We have two doctors in the house and one prospective doctor, a doctor um, in waiting, shall we say. So very exciting. As part of our Queer Voices, we have Dr. Joe Parza with us. Hi. Hi. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on this. It's lovely and dark outside. It's quite nice. It feels intimate. Oh, I like that. Ooh. Mm. So, dear listener, if you're not in the dark right now, we recommend you get in the dark somewhere cozy <laughs> so that you can listen to our dulcet tones uh, also in the dusk of night. Because I'm in Sweden and it gets dark at like two in the afternoon right now. So it's kind of cozy all the time. So, yes. Isn't it um, huggy? Huggy, isn't that the word that they use for coziness? H-U-G-G-G-G-E-Y? Huggy? <laughs> Did I do too many Gs? You could never have too many Gs for Huggy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I, I would normally introduce you first, but um, would you like to go first? Yeah, I can go if you want. Um, yeah. So who are you, Dr. J? Dr. Joe, who are you? My name is Dr. Joe Parslow. I am currently a lecturer in contemporary performance practice at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, which is part of the University of London. Even if we might be resistant to the idea of Royal, it's there whether we like it or not. And I do various different things. I teach a lot on an undergraduate course in applied theatre and education, community theatre work, where I direct shows as well as do theory classes. And I also there work on research ethics and integrity. So a big part of my job is working around ethics, which is interesting, if very policy driven and compliance driven at times, but I found it quite cool. And then another part of my kind of alter ego type of my job is connected to my research so all of my research is involved with drag performance and queer communities and the ways in which communities come together around spaces where drag happens so I've been a producer of drags shows and cabarets in London for about a decade or more I guess really on and off in kind of nebulous ways so yeah I sort of spend my life in between the classroom and the drag show and the gay bar um, and sometimes those are the same thing, and sometimes they are not. Fabulous. <laughs> oh, I want to talk to you about ethics now. It's one of my particular favorite topics. We also went through a gigantic ethical review process just now. For my PhD, I'm designing a game called Euphoria, which is effectively a live action role play, which reproduces a queer club space in a way that's supposed to give enough alibi for people to play with gender and allow them to try out these things without feeling like they're doing it for real. It's like, oh, I'm putting on a character and playing it in a game. It's not real. So I guess the experience is okay. And I can sort of like have the alibi of play. And uh, we did a gigantic ethical review process with the Swedish ethical board in which we had to tell them what we were doing, (laughs) why and what information we were going to ask of people. And we went through it in flying colors. It was great. So, But yes, it's a passion of mine too. Ethics and ethical representation, ethical epistemologies. That's my, my thing. So, yes, I guess that leads to me. Um, hi, my name is Josephine Baird. As I mentioned, I'm a doctor in waiting in that I'm doing a PhD at the moment at the University of Vienna, which is not actually where I am. <laughs> I've never been to Vienna to do my PhD work. I've only ever been there to play roller derby. I actually teach at the University of Uppsala and I work there at the Department of Game Design, where I teach on game design and my PhD is on game design. Before that, I used to be a performer and actor. I trod the boards for many years and then I didn't tread them so often anymore. And otherwise, I like to think of myself as a femme of international mystery. (laughs) Because (laughs) Uh, Dr. J, who art thou? I've also just realized we didn't do any pronouns at the start. And I don't know what Joe's pronouns are in this situation because pronouns are always slightly different in situations. And I know, Joe, I'm often she when Joe and I are out in spaces. So, yeah, I just thought I would double check because I just assumed that Joe would be she because that's the pronoun I would have used in that space. And I thought I'd better check because you're being Dr. Joe, which is slightly different to Joe, who's doing the door. And is hashtag boyfriend slash spouse slash husband Joe, Dr. Joe Paslow. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is one of my yeah my many complex titles in that so there was a for context there was a docudrama filmed in around 2013 called drag queens of london which was ironically about drag queens in london and uh that featured myself and a family of performers i worked with at the time when we were putting on a show with some performers from rupaul's drag race back in 2013 before it was cool to do that you know of course <laughs> and uh and the documentary, whenever I got referred to, they would refer to me as boyfriend. Joe is in the kitchen making risotto or whatever. And I, weirdly, I was making risotto at one point. I remember, <laughs> I remember Twitter being like, well, what, why are they showing this twink making risotto? <laughs> What's going on? Um, and, and it got picked up on actually for a slight name clang in some ways. But Manila Luzon, who's a drag race performer, uh, picked up on it and named me hashtag boyfriend Joe. And it sort of stuck. And then when I became a husband, Rather than boyfriend, it was hashtag husband, boyfriend, Joe, and then doctor. So doctor, husband, boyfriend, Joe became the full <laughs> title. Husband, and I was in a documentary in 2004 where I also was making risotto. Oh, wow. That was a very queer <laughs> performance <laughs> then. Queer risotto. It's clearly What's a thing. What's this about risotto? <laughs> um, Is risotto the new queer thing? Pronouns though. Sorry. Yes, that's what I didn't get anywhere near. I didn't get anywhere near pronouns, which is which I quite like, actually, in some ways. I guess if I'm in a teaching setting, I tend to say I use they or he pronouns and I don't really mind. But the joke I always make is I don't mind what you call me as long as you call me, which is not a good <laughs> joke. And no one actually really asked it. I would have um, loved. That's such a dead joke. It's showing our ages in comparison to the drag youth that we are hanging out with, that yeah. we are dads mm-hmm. making dad jokes. Yes. Yeah. Dads or daddies, whichever one you want. Um, <laughs> and I um, I mean, I've had this conversation with students quite recently and I kind of say I, it doesn't matter to me, which is not to say I, it might not matter to you really, really clearly. I started using they, he for two reasons rather than he, they for two reasons. One was when I put he, they, lots of people would just only use he. And so putting they first forces the people who need to do the work to do the work. And the second one is like, I guess, in a position now where I hold a level of authority or quote unquote power, then I guess, you know, it's nice for undergraduates to see a they pronoun person being a doctor. Like That's a thing that they go, oh, you can do that thing. And so like, in many ways, I don't really mind. And I like a gay she. I like it. Oh, ain't she bold? Oh. <laughs> ain't but she then, bougie? Ain't she bougie? Ain't she? Oh, that's a bold <laughs> shirt she's wearing, isn't it? You know, all of those things. I'm very happy with that too. Yeah. They, he, she, whatever. Yes. Yeah, I'm she, her. As usual, I don't really change. And so if we're doing dad jokes or daddy jokes, then allow me to be the uh, mummy of the... <laughs> Of the group, although I never think of myself as the mommy. The only person I think of as the mommy is uh, Lady Dimitrescu. <laughs> oh, yes. Big, tall, stompy lady from... Who I've gotten to give a um, introduction to one of my... Co- uh, my I, I can't tell my classes. I can't put out until they have their lecture, but I've gotten her to give a, a little bit of um, an introduction to one of their... Uh, exercises over Christmas <laughs> oh my god me, I, I got it the other day she wrote to me and said like here for your students and I was like thank <gasps> you that's amazing so that's fun there you go sorry random bullshit are you they I am they in most situations I'm they I'm never he but I am also the drag she in that way in groups of drag performers I will often use she because it's so much easier, because then everyone's running by the same pronouns. So who am I? Hi, I'm Dr. J. I use they as a pronoun. I got to give myself the job title Harbinger of Change because I work at a bespoke software consultancy called ThoughtWorks, where they allow people to do such crazy things. I also go by the gender transgressive non-binary genderqueer because I was lucky enough to be, well, birthed in New Zealand, and New Zealand allowed me to write a statutory declaration to that effect, and I now have an official gender of transgressive non-binary genderqueer, which is brilliant, unless you're trying to fit it on most forms, because it doesn't fit on most forms. I'm a Hashtag queer nuisance and a troublemaker. Oh, and the other thing is I'm very much more dad joke than daddy. Got not a good star, rather enjoying yeah. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Listening back to the Kate Bornstein episode and you know, and there's, you know, generous and deep and beautiful conversations about hope and courage, and here we are having a conversation about <laughs> I'm all for this, dear God I am. I am so ready for I love talking to Kate. Kate mm-hmm. is one of my favorite people in the world. I enjoy 
uh, we're deep conversations, but honestly, I don't think Kate would mind me sharing this. When we do meet and we often meet at like academic conferences or different things like that, we hide ourselves in a corner and giggle about whatever the hell's going on at the time <laughs> because it's like we're really tired and like, you know, like, oh, no, let's just go and talk shit. Yeah. So that, that was actually our intellectual best behavior, but normally it would have been, uh, <laughs> nobody would have been, you know, interesting Stupid. conversations. Most of the conversations that I have with Joe have either been when you've been doing the door and you've been quietly practicing teaching me queer theory because if I can understand it you've explained it enough that your students will get it using me as like the lowest common denominator for understanding queer theory or it's hanging out in the smoking area of a bar going oh my god what have we just seen (laughs) and how do we describe it I can't think of anything more Judith Butler than sitting in a drag bar trying to explain queer theory to someone at the door to try and determine how you could communicate it more accessibly yeah it's, it was my uh for a long time I used to sit on the door and plan lessons for the next day when I was doing my PhD and teaching by the hour kind of vibe I'd do lots of that and be like Jay what is this, this is I'd just come and hang by the door and help out kind of also being a smiley person as people walk in, smiley, non-threatening person. And then the moment people went to be like, so this queer theory thing, this, this chrononormous something or other, how does that work again? <laughs> how, how does that work again? Good. <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's a demystification that I think a lot of fields could do with. And one of them is academia and the other is like, like consultancy or like working in certain industries or certain businesses, certain communities, because you get into these things of like, oh, I couldn't possibly be that person. I couldn't possibly do that thing. And actually the truth is there's no reason why you can't. It's just that we build up these sort of meta languages, these barriers to sort of somehow say we're legitimate and you're not, you know, it's, it's really weird. 20 years ago, I started a PhD. And the weirdest thing was when I was a master's student, they wouldn't let me teach a course. They were like, oh, you can't possibly teach your master's student. And then the day I got a PhD place, they went, oh, would you like to teach a course? And I was like, (laughs) so what happened the day before and the day after? Nothing has changed. And yet now I'm more legitimate. And of course it is because I got a bit of paper that says I am. And so therefore I must be. I remember the conversations I had with my PhD supervisor, a really wonderful academic called Stephen Farrier, who writes a lot about drag and queer performance and is kind of one of the best academic mentors I I could have had, really. And queer working class academic who kind of modelled that behaviour in a really beautiful way. And I remember him saying that the PhD viva is one of the few experiences in your life when you walk into a room and you leave it and your name has changed. But at the same time, at like similarly to going from MA to PhD, going from PhD to post PhD is often an experience of, oh, suddenly I've got doctor in front of my name, which means that when I send an email, not always, but sometimes people read it in a way and respond in a way that I have a level of authority. And that's like weird and terrifying, but also really exciting and interesting because it, it shows kind of how those hierarchies reperform themselves. Really interestingly, part of my ethics work is that I do administrative work. And so sometimes I am so I'm called the administrator when I work for an organization called Conservatoires UK. And often the email address that I am connected to and say, dear Mr. Parslow, because of course an administrator couldn't have a PhD, right? You know, and of course someone <laughs> with the name JOE would be a mister. Like there's so many assumptions going on there in that moment of mister, which is like properly fascinating and properly tells you everything you need to know about academia and its and its kind of hierarchies, all of those sorts of things. And whenever it happened, Steve Ferry, who I worked with, would often reply saying, Dr. Parslow, and would just, you know, and his job would he would he would come <laughs> into that moment to be like, as I was chatting to Dr. Parslow, and those things are those things are interesting. But when and where you use it, I think sometimes I'm like, no, I worked really hard on it. I want to use it. And sometimes I find it embarrassing, weirdly. Sometimes there's kind of slight embarrassment about it's a bit of a nerdy thing to do in it. Like, oh God, obsess over a thing for four years and then five years, six years, and then you know. Anyway, just this is a very niche conversation. Lamenting. <laughs> no, no. Actually, I was going to say, I think what's really interesting is that you're touching on a couple of things. One is this notion of privilege and how to apply it and when to use it, who gets access to it, when, and how is it communicated. And the other thing that's really interesting is this notion of titles, this thing of like using one's title strategically or even like having it applied without even it consulted in the process. Like I was explaining just before we came on to the call that as a teacher to students from all kinds of places, every now and again, a student will call me ma'am and um, they'll do it in email or they'll do it in person. 
and part of me is immediately bristles with like, <clears throat> uh, no, it's really no, that's <laughs> that's not the title you apply to me. It's it's like the opposite. But I mean, okay, fair enough. But this thing of like, well, no, they've used that title. This is what they're comfortable with. It's almost meaner to to start saying no. Don't call me that. I could try to be really nice and just be like super chill and call me Josephine, but it makes them. S- those people who are using that title are a little uncomfortable. And so it's like, okay, for that, it's okay. But now that I have a job as a lecturer, I'm an authority figure in a way that I <laughs> just not really comfortable with. I've just been this sort of cabaret performer who occasionally writes an academic article. When I was writing an academic article and I wasn't doing a PhD, I would uh, apply to conferences every now and again and send in my article they'd always ask what is your affiliation and what is your title and so i'd be like uh, my affiliation is josephine enterprises uh, <laughs> what, what would you want but actually it turned out that the official title i was supposed to use was um oh not title but the official affiliation was independent scholar mm-hmm. and then when I, once i started calling myself an independent scholar it was really weird i got all this sort of like kudos and i was like it means someone who doesn't have a job or a degree <laughs> it's, it's, it's like means unemployed it's so fucking or freelancer free there you go freelancer they never paid me jay <laughs> it's an academic conference Work- <laughs> <laughs> working for exposure now there's a good queer topic because how much work have we all done for exposure or to help somebody out or uh, yeah mm. yes <laughs> yes interesting I used to go to conferences, academic conferences, and if I was performing as an artist, I'd get paid and I'd get a hotel room. If I went to speak as a scholar, (laughs) like you pay us to to show up. And it was weird. There was one uh, academic conference in Sweden I went to and I was speaking and performing and I was in this hotel and I was like, you know, it was very nice and fancy. And then I was meeting some of the students afterwards and they were like, oh, hey, you know, do you want to have a drink? And they were like, actually... Uh, we have to go back to our hotel room. And I was like, oh, are you all staying in the same place? And they're like, no, we're in a hostel. It's four beds. We're all in the same place. And and I was like, oh, okay. You're all coming to the bar. I'm, I'm buying you a drink. <laughs> so I feel really bad right now because I'm like, they're paying me and they give me a hotel because I'm doing 15 minutes of a performance. And they're doing at least an hour and a half of a intense academic presentation. And it's just wild. Mm. So the presumption of privilege and access to funds or access to money or this idea that you're supposed to pay your dues in certain environments academics especially i've never been funded for my academic work i'm doing my phd right now whilst working 100 because it's the only way i could do it same thing the first time around but the presumption is always that if you're going to be in higher education especially that kind of higher education you're either getting funded by someone else or you're independently wealthy and so you should be able to pay your way no problem and so it's this horrible barrier to access. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And it's, now I've started supervising PhD students and, and it is a really interesting, like, and essentially it's a pipeline issue, right? Which sounds really corporate, and, but it is. It's a pipeline issue of getting people in. And one thing that we've just actually, that I'm really pleased with, and I will toot my own horn slightly or toot my institution's horn slightly, is that we are part of a consortium that gets funding and we do collaborative doctoral awards, CDAs, where universities partner with organisations. And often that means you get people applying for PhDs with practice experience but maybe less academic experience or less traditionally likely to go and do PhDs so I've got an amazing PhD student who will be starting next year in a collaborative doctoral award with contact in Manchester looking at queer youth theatre practices an amazing student called Ella McCarthy who is just fantastic a really amazing community theatre artist and queer community theatre artist and so like what's amazing is that if you can target that funding and part of that process was just going how do we use the language of the funder to get the funding and then we do the work we want to do then you can do those things they're small and they're minimal but those changes are really interesting and really important but they take the labor of that was part of my job is to do things like that but was 24 hours worth of work when you kind of add it all up if not more you know and that's the time that I'm not planning teaching or not planning other stuff or not ordering chairs for rooms or not thinking about syllabi or anything of all of those things it takes all of that work but it is worth it if you can kind of do those things but yeah that's great. Is it too late for me to transfer? <laughs> no, that's really great. And we, we talked about this idea of discussing space and creating space and holding space and using that to elevate voices. 
for the longest time, Jay will know this, we've been, we started this podcast whilst I was unemployed in the middle of the pandemic and feeling really, really fucked up. And it was like, okay, I have no money. I have no source of creative outlet. I am really screwed. But weirdly enough, that was something I was kind of used to for several decades of just being like, no, I'm used to being on the outside. I'm used to that environment. I can kind of cope. And very recently, as in literally the last month, I've secured my job. I was a part-time lecturer for two years, and now I've just secured a full-time position there. So my job is now secure, which is really super exciting. But it's left me in this really odd position of like, oh, I'm secure? <laughs> I, I Hold on. I have some measure of privilege and power now. What do I do with that? How can I use this now to help everybody else who's like me? And I can drag them along and create space for them. Because that's, as far as I'm concerned, the leitmotif of everything we've ever done. Jay and I, um, some of the work that you've been talking about, Joe, this idea of, you know, using your position, strategically being aware of the discourse that's around to make space for people who wouldn't normally have access to this. And especially from my experience, I didn't. And now I suddenly do. And it's really wild. I had to go about it a really weird way. <laughs> Hence the PhD in Vienna and working in Uppsala. But it's something that's on my mind. People from my town didn't do PhDs, right? Or people from my family didn't do PhDs, like didn't do degrees, you know? And I think that we could probably all say that, reflect that actually the experience of doing that. And having done one, and I got some partial funding for mine, and I was very lucky to have got partial funding. And that meant, you know, still ended up working loads and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, managed to get through. And that suddenly means that the privilege that I have is not only a kind of financial, I mean, technically stability and because and I'm on a fixed term contract currently, but it's a longer one. But it means that I have choices, firstly. So it means that I do have a set of choices that I can make about what I do and options available to me. And it means that I, on a really basic level, my life expectancy is probably higher than if I'd stayed in the town that I grew up in, right? And that's a really scary thing to think about in some ways. That comes with responsibility. Think about it in two ways. One is about like, and they're different metaphors. One is about, el is like elbow room. So like, if you can get into the room, are you elbowing out room for then other people to kind of also get there, to get to the front of the queue, whatever that might be. So kind of how sharp do you need to have you make your elbows? Which is interesting because sometimes elbowing people out the way is the way to do it and sometimes going hey would you mind just move? hey hi yeah oh yeah you know me aren't you I'm the I'm the nice white boy yeah 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 of course move over move over and then other people come forward right and there's times so you learn when to I guess I feel like I'm getting better at knowing when to play that role and knowing when to use those things that I am read as to my advantage even if I feel discomfort when I am read as those things it is an important part is you know I can take that privilege and I can run with it and I can do those things and I guess the other one, I was having a conversation recently with a colleague about this, is about, I don't always know what doors I get through just because I can walk through them. And I think about it, Sarah Ahmed talks about this beautifully in a text called An Affinity of Hammers. That's a text about, I think it's in TSQ in Transgender Studies Quarterly or one of those ones. It's about kind of the coalition of trans feminist and feminist politics. And she talks about, I don't know what walls I pass through that are put up for the people. So part of a job of privilege is about becoming aware of those and working to go, oh, shit, I'm behind this door. All right, I'm going to open it. Right, in you come. That's discomforting because that confronting your own privilege is a discomforting experience. It has to be because privilege shouldn't be a comfortable thing, but it shouldn't be a guilty thing. And I think that's the line, right? That I have to be really careful to tread. I don't feel guilt about that privilege. I should feel uncomfortable about it and I should use it when I can. But I think it's a complex line to tread. I spin the notion of privilege into advantage because privilege is so loaded, especially when I'm talking to technology people, they react to the concept when I refer to it as I've got a bit of an advantage. You know, I've managed to get in the room. I've managed to get here. You know, why is there a blue head non-binary person who's got mental health issues standing up in front of you talking about this stuff, but also using in the same way hopefully as Joe does, is finding ways to use the advantages that I've been given through having stable work in a job that values me and, and a job that pays me relatively well, that allows me to do other things and open other doors for people and find ways to 
spread that out. Convincing work to give me a webinar version of Zoom so that we could run Queer House Party. That was one of those things of recognizing there was a little advantage there that I could play. I knew the people to ask the question of. I knew the way to frame it that they would understand it. I knew the questions to ask. I knew what I could get away with and what I couldn't get away with pretty much. And I could ask them for something that other people wouldn't have been able to even know that they could ask for. And sometimes it's it's being, I don't know whether it's a, when I say being cheeky, it feels like that working class thing of you're cheeky if you ask for something. Oh, you're so cheeky asking for that. Whereas I don't think most of the people I work with grew up as middle class, so they don't have that reaction to being asked for something or to asking for something. They're just like, I want this. I can ask for it. I'm like, oh, um, you could ask for that. Okay, could I ask for this thing? It's kind of like what they're asking for, but it's slightly different and I want to use it for this. And everyone that I ask for things like that, are usually like, yeah, of course. Why are you even sounding concerned about it? Growing up in an environment where asking for things is seen as being cheeky or putting yourself above your station or doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And I think that's an advantage that people with a middle class upbringing we get stuck behind walls that they don't even know that are there because they've just ghosted through them or those walls don't even exist for them because they just think, yeah, I should ask for that. I want it. I'll ask for it. Whereas I'm like, ah, could I please have some more? But it's also about what you're doing with those things and what you're doing with those advantages. Are you using them to get space for other people or are you using them to profit and push yourself forward? To me, that's always a question that I ask of myself when I'm doing those things and maybe more critically than anyone else would because Christian working class kids get taught not to ask for things. I also was taught, don't you dare ask for something. You know, you will get punished for asking something. Not, not even that you you shouldn't ask for it. You, you, you are going to be really dissuaded for that. And I was really used to that being coming out as queer when I was really young and then realizing that the usual paths just aren't available. So all these things that people go, oh, you know, when you apply for a PhD, you go through these like, you know, a funding part or you go this way or you go that way. You know, of course, you have all these advantages. You have these things all ready to go because that path is available to you. And it's like it just isn't for me. So I came up with this idea of just doing these queer parkours, like through <laughs> different kinds of like legislation or rules or things like that. You're always just like shifting around. So my way of doing things is always find out what technically is allowed. And then scooch past it as best you can. Even better if you can find a loophole. And now being on the other side of that is really weird because it's literally a few weeks old. And I had a, a meeting with a colleague at the department yesterday. And we were just talking about all sorts of things. Part of it was me going, I'm kind of shocked I'm here <laughs> and that you're keeping me. And I'm really excited for that. And then we started talking about why I was there. And I mentioned some of the people that had gotten me to that position. And I said, there are particular game designers. Uh, I won't mention names because maybe they don't want me to, but this particular person I have in mind who is one of the key reasons why I'm there. And I was telling her about this person. And then she said, well, can we get them to come do a lecture? And I was like, well, sure, but wouldn't I have to pay for that? And she just looked at me like I was an idiot. <laughs> just like, no, we would pay, pay them to do that. In fact, actually, what about if we did a series? And I was like, more than one person and I don't have to pay them myself <laughs> she was like yes we could make that happen that would be very cool yeah we might have to find some money but and I was like it just doesn't compute I would never have even asked for it It wouldn't have even occurred to me I would have come up with this idea of like right we'll do a fundraiser then we'll have a little bar at night and then we'll do this and then we'll do that and then we'll get them in the country some weird way and then we'll get some money from so and so and da -da -da -da. it would never occur to me to say hey can we maybe get some money from the department to bring in some really talented artists who work in the field that's really relevant to our department. It just didn't occur to me that that's something you would ask for. So I'm trying to get used to that. And I do have that privilege now. I do have that advantage. It should be the basic experience, but it's the advantage of some people over others. Some people have choices and some people do not. We call that privilege. And it's a real thing. 
Jay, you've talked about this before in terms of your position right now in your job. It's really interesting to hear that position from you, Joe, and how you're trying to use that to forward work by some really interesting people who wouldn't normally be able to access kind of education. It's really exciting to hear that. And I genuinely wish I'd known that two years ago when I was trying to find my PhD position (laughs) as I was doing literally that, like, let me find a place where I can do my PhD position, don't have to be there, don't have to have funding, can just show up and Yeah. So now I'm really excited to hear that. What I'll do is I'll try to use the opportunities I now have to do that as well. Because, yeah, what else are you going to do with that kind of authority? Really great colleague of mine called Dr. Sylvan Baker, who works a lot with children and young people with experience of the care system in some way in the UK. Him, along with a few other academics, um, Maggie Inchley, who's a Queen Mary's I'm not gonna remember the names of them all but they ran a project called the verbatim formula I think it's still ongoing you can look at their website it's really excellent about where people voiced and performed verbatim performances of these testimonies of care experienced youth and they did it to people in parliament they did it to people who are making legislation around care experienced young people and it is kind of a really amazing project I and mean, it started from the idea that everyone said oh you know often there's a discourse of oh these this group of people don't have a voice you know they don't have a voice and actually no 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 they were they have a fucking voice they are speaking no one is listening to them that's it. and so the project was actually was not how do I give a voice to these people it was how do I make people listen to them and that's a very subtle but really important shift I think and I think about this in with students but I also think about this in some ways in relation to kind of drag performers it's about how do we find space to listen to what people need and then work towards that but it's an ongoing project of finding ways to listen there is often an understanding of being silenced as or being silent as a position of oppression and, and being able to speak as a position of power. And I often think it's the opposite of that. And if you don't have to speak often, that's a real sign that you occupy a real position of privilege. If you're having to speak to defend yourself, to articulate your position, to say what you need, right? That's often a position of precarity. Same with visibility. There are times when I pass by unscathed. There are times when I'm in an airport, it's not my body that's being picked up on those scanners, right? If I'm walking down a certain street at a certain time of night, sometimes it is my body, but often I have a huge amount of privilege in not being seen, being visible. I think about this in relation to Ocean Vyong, who in a really beautiful book on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, says, to be gorgeous, you have to first be seen, but to be seen allows you to be hunted. And that idea is really important I think and really profound and really I mean beautiful the book is amazing but that sense of actually being really aware of what it means to listen as a practice as opposed to giving someone a voice is a really interesting thing for me. I was at a conference where somebody was talking about oh my goodness they were talking about glamour as this underrated form of expression that is often considered lower or near ridiculous he was describing it as like look if you think about glamorous people the people who are really glamorous the ones who can pull it off are the ones who've got the money and the time to do it but it so easily falls into the ludicrous right if you don't do quite right you become ludicrous and he was arguing for this wonderful notion of like of using that notion of glamour of like using the breadth of it and he was like you know we need to glamorize the declining glamour you know the glamour where you're just like really messed up and you're <laughs> reclining and died on the on the on the couch or the well the glamour of the, the absolutely horrendously harsh glamour goddesses who are fierce and mean you know and he was talking about that visibility of queerness of taking up space of using the codes of privileged visibility to take up space and be heard in another way and i was just fascinated by this idea of trying to claim those languages but yes this idea of becoming a target once you're visible is just something that I think each of us has at some point or another dealt with recently or or less recently. And you're absolutely right about voices. I think of the times I've been the most exhausted in my academic or activist or personal life. It's always been because I've been shouting and arguing for and claiming the most basic right, the most basic privilege. Please let us, in my case, Uh, have a relationship or have my gender identity recognized or have a child in one case I wrote an article for a journal about four-year battle we had to literally just have the opportunity to have a child and it took four years of fighting to do the thing that those people who don't have to do that would just do it without a second thought and yeah those are the times when I've been the most scared is not just that I'm fighting and exhausting myself, but then you become a target at the same time. And that's so true right now in this Mm -hmm. current culture. 
just so scary. I've spent most of my life being out as a trans person. It's never been something that I've had to hide. I have that privilege. I've been really lucky. I've been able to just be out. And it has afforded me a certain amount of power because, yes, I was out and very visible for, for many, many years. And there was no one who didn't know I was trans. And for 20 years, I was able to do that, no problem. And in the last couple of years, I've started to question whether or not I want to do that anymore. <laughs> it's getting scary. Mm. And maybe I have the privilege to hide that, but I don't think I will. <laughs> I was discussing some of that with work when I got caught in a pylon the other week. And they were like, are you going to be okay? And I'm like, okay, the things they could dox me on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> My work knows and you support me. My family knows. My brother, A, probably doesn't care. But also, if somebody did say something, he'd be righteously angry and and go for them. So there is that. My housing officer knows. My doctor knows. My mechanic knows because we had a discussion about queerness the other day. You know, it's just like my neighbors know. There is nobody in my life. So by being radically open... I've managed to make myself pretty much undoxable, but it's still a very scary thing to have to sit down and run through a checklist of, okay, so I'm on my way to this particular client. If something happened, I was lucky. Twitter couldn't decide if I was a man or a woman, so they didn't know whether to threaten to kill me or to threaten to rape me or both. So they decided to do neither and just called me Ronnie Corbett. But it's actually horrifying that that's the standard of the discourse that you have when you're openly not of the binary gender on social medias at the moment and in the public spheres at the moment. I gave a talk at a conference called the Every Woman Conference. I had to preface my talk with, I'm not actually a woman, but I'm here at this conference and then continue on. I have no idea how many people clocked off then. Nobody kicked off at me, but I was sitting there going, How many people are going to kick off at that line? Because that was a worry. No matter what reassurance the organizers had done, I was still worried that that was going to be a contentious moment and that was going to override the content of what I was talking about, which was something completely different, was going to be overridden by a discussion of who I was and whether I was okay to speak at this conference. There is that constant pressure on us to either be visible or be invisible. And I know that it's not a binary because nothing's a binary, but it is also a constant tension of how visible do you need to be in the space? And, you know, in queer spaces, I'm comfortable because I feel I can take up spaces, this day glue, dad joke, quoting hobbity type thing. But in non-queer spaces, I've got to be something else. Do I continue to perform the same queerness or do I have to put it away do I need to bring it down a little bit where do I have to play it to keep myself safe and you're constantly having to kind of check the temperature in ways that I don't think people who are more normative have to do in the same way as I age slowly um, even if I maintain a you're still a twink well yes potentially as I get older anyway and I feel more kind of in my body anyway whatever's happening I feel closer to where I should be I pass in loads of different ways. And so I've had this really interesting experience recently of being referred to as a cis man in a professional setting as one of a group of gentlemen. I was asked, are you a they when I had a badge on my on my thing? And I mean, it's a really like little things. And I've been reflecting on it. Like the first thought I had with it was, oh, well, what gave me away? <laughs> like, like actually, in that kind of, you know, um, in, which is... Is it the, the op- nail varnish? Yeah. Is it the flamboyant? But, is it the but, faggot tattoo? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I wonder who... But with all of that, it's also like that those events have happened in moments where I'm in a position of relative power. So they happen in moments where I'm kind of not the lowest rung of the ladder. In fact, moments where my opinion in that room, particularly in one of the cases, it was a position where I was in a little bit of power. And so it's really interesting that those experiences for me have happened quite recently, which have kind of led me to reflect on the fact that in many ways I do totally pass. And I get the privilege of being a cis man, even if my experience of my gender, I don't think is particularly cis. So it's not simple, right? And I and actually, I think for me, I am much less at risk than I ever have been, I think, in some ways. And finding those realisations is quite important, but troubling, because what is it about the position that I'm starting to occupy where I feel comfortable, which is actually relatively normative in some ways, even though my instinct is that inside I 
don't feel that like I was reflecting on the Kate Bornstein episode to you know refer back to the universe of the podcast around that difference between expression and identity and actually in many ways my expression of my gender in some worlds is relatively normal I'm wearing a cardigan that is essentially like a an H&M cardigan I'm one of the few quote-unquote men at work who doesn't just wear black or white or brown or gray or sometimes navy blue but that's about it and yet my experience of my own gender is one which is I don't know like a shifting constellation of messy practices it's sloppy and unsophisticated and all of those things and it's been a really interesting I guess what I'm waffling about is that it's been a really interesting set of realizations for me of a kind of a disjunction between an internal experience and an external reading but that doesn't feel oppressive is what I'm trying to get to like I don't feel like I need to change something about what I'm doing or change how I move in the world but it does feel like I don't know like I'm being read like a nursery school picture book but inside I feel like I'm a kind of multi-dimensional algorithm <laughs> and, 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 uh, and I don't know what to do with that information because partly the nursery school version of me gets into rooms you know and, and walks home at night is afforded access and, and I guess it's that thing that we're talking about again and again today which is interesting that this is where we this is what's come up which is like is who gets to move and how do we move and once we're able to move what do we do with that ability to move it's that notion of space again from a room of one's own to social geographies to queer geographies this notion of who gets to move where and when who gets to occupy that space who's visible in that space and for what reason whose voice is heard and whose voice is not and who has to constantly speak in order to get even the most minor recognition these are all the same kind of valid questions about who is afforded opportunity and space in the work that I'm doing right now we're talking about trying to create containers like containers of play is what we talk about this is my colleague Sarah Lynn Bowman and um, uh, Shell Hugos wrote an excellent article on this idea of creating play containers containers where things can be played with that can be navigated in ways that don't have the same consequences as if you were doing it in other parts of the world which is why my phd is this simple idea of like you can play with gender in games so let's make games where you can play with gender and do it in ways that are fun right and also maybe allow someone the opportunity to do something they might not be able to do anywhere else and learn something about themselves or each other. That's the the idea. But in order to do that, you have to create a safer container. You have to make a space for that to happen. You have to be aware of the spaces that we do and do not have access to, who is required to express when and how in those spaces, and how you then create an alternative for that, that is accessible enough given the environment that we're in. So even if you create a safer container, who has access to it? How do you create access for it in the culture that we currently live in? It's a tremendously complicated question, and yet it's fundamental. This came up when we did Queers to the Queer, so all three of us were involved in it, just for the listener to be aware. And there was always the question of, am I queer enough to come to Queerest to the Queer? And our answer was, if you're asking the question, you're queer enough. And it came up the other day, I went to hear Dr. Julia Shaw talk, who wrote the book by, she does bad people with Sophie Hagen. That's a big BBC recorded podcast. So she's a proper podcaster. And one of the questions that she was being asked afterwards in the conversation was, am I bisexual enough to call myself bi? By a lot of people. And it's like, if you're asking the question, you're enough. And I think that's almost a notion about taking up that space of there is a sense of policing the space for, do you know what type of night this is, is often that question that's asked of people when they're coming in. And it's like, if people are asking, should I come along to this night? It's like, if you're asking that question, yes, you probably fit the demographic for that night because you are queer enough or bi enough or gay enough or camp enough or drag enough or something enough to go along and be in that space and absorb it and 
and I do have that thing of every performance changes your life, but every time you step in that room, every time you're in that space with other people watching something from the stage, there is a huge transitive, trans, transitional, there's a huge stuff that goes on that interconnects because you as the audience connect with other members of the audience with what's been said on stage and that sparks other ideas across everybody and can create a sense of belonging or a sense of distance or a sense of understanding or a sense of conflict all of that can be created and played with and understood and by being in that space you become part of that space even if you weren't sure that you were part of that space when you walked in the door. I think what you've articulated there really nicely is the argument that I had in my PhD which, <laughs> which, is quite nice. um, which is that you know like I always I actually I was funny I was talking about this to a group of MA acting and musical theatre students on Wednesday nights that like actually my research was I was standing in these bars watching drag and something was happening and the research was trying to find out what that something was and, and you know and really actually Steve Farrier and Alison Campbell in their book Queer Dramaturgy suggest that a queer dramaturgy is the specific moment where it all comes together for that and it might just be for 30 seconds of a performance it might just be for 10 and it's about who's in the space and and who's on stage and, and the interconnection between those things and I guess my argument in my research is often these communities are fleeting and ephemeral they come together in one venue they appear for a second they move away they disperse because they have to be able to duck and weave and stay out of people's eye lines and stay in people's eye lines and all of those sorts of things and at the same time exactly part of the desire to like produce space or to develop spaces where things can happen or to find containers I love that idea of containers just being so that's such a lovely way of thinking about it is about a desire for me anyway for other people to experience the thing that I found to be so enabling so when I'm making work which is really rarely now that I produce shows but when I am doing it, it's always about a kind of geeky desire to share. No, 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 well, this thing, like trying to like when you want to share your favorite film with someone or share those sorts of things. It comes from that, which is about a deep love for the work and a deep care for the work in some ways. I'm always really reminded of actually it's one of the first experiences I had of that moment in some ways, or the, the, the one that's the most articulate in my PhD is going to see Miss Kimberly perform at Pride in 2014 at the RVT when it was whatever taking it over and Miss Kimberly performed and you were there Jay and it's when I think we first properly met. I took that photo of you and me. Yes yeah the lovely photo that's there's we've got two versions of it in our house of, of my husband in drag kissing me on the cheek and it's and I talk about a moment where Kim who is is just one of the most profoundly wonderful performers in the in the world sings you make me feel like a natural woman and and I think my memory of it is she sat on the edge of the stage and just looked at one person and, and, and that's the memory that I have and and I talk about it in relation to breath I think that that moment in the night was a moment of breath because it was the one moment where Kim wasn't doing a high energy number but it was also a breath for Kim you know Kim always is having to take these deep breaths to hit these technically challenging high notes and for us as an audience we were breathing and we had breath and we had space to breathe and I draw from Sarah Ahmed for this of course because I always go back to Sarah Ahmed I'm essentially a publicist at this point I just referencing her all the time but she has this beautiful idea of aspiration and maybe the Latin root of the word aspiration is to aspire is to breathe right and that maybe that's what queer hope is about it's about having space to breathe and it's such a beautifully profound found experience because actually when you don't have space to breathe you can't catch your breath because you don't feel safe you can't imagine you can't get oxygen to your brain all of these sorts of things and actually that sense of having space to breathe is just beautiful and that's what I see in drag when it works at its best or in queer performance work queer popular performance at its best is these opportunities to gasp and to take in a full breath and when I can do that I can hope and that's it that's beautiful and I think there's one extra piece on that it's breathing together me doing that performance at her me and you you shall not yas of doing roar and everyone in the audience just roaring along with the song singing the song but also knowing all of the interstitial cuttings mm. and just that final moment of for frodo just everyone screaming it and i'm like there is a bar full of queer geeks performing to a drag queen who's referring to a film that's now over 10 years old almost 20 years old 
yes, I know it's frightening, isn't it? And we're all turning around and just doing just one little line from it, but we're doing it together. We all know exactly when that beat comes in because we've seen or heard the performance enough times, but you also start to breathe along with it. And that was one of the things as a photographer, I would always try and breathe along with the performer because I would know when they were going to hit a note or hit a moment in the performance but then as an audience doing that it's so powerful to be breathing and yelling and screaming that same thing together there's a notion of belonging and being seen and seeing that all just ties in that just reflects backwards and forwards over and over and over and yeah that's one of those nights I'm like wow but I tear up slightly talking about it I mean absolutely that breathing together I talk about it as coming together we might come together, <laughs> right? That is perfect. Yeah, a, che- a cheeky euphemism, you know. Yes, yes, yes. But like coming, but like the pleasures of coming together for a show mm. and the pleasures of coming together, right? There's something really fascinating in that. But that sense of I'm breath is I'm fascinated with breath because also when me the drag queen is lip syncing, she breathes with the track right? as an act of performance. She's she's often whispering ever so slightly, and and a lot of performers talk about that. That a good lip sync is breath. It's, it's all about breath. We know ourselves or one knows that good performance is often any performance anywhere is about being on breath finding your breath all of that and so breath is such a, an enabling thing in that sense yeah I mean I'm also love that we can be so emotional about for Frodo that it's stupid it's silly it's playful it's irreverent and it's camp yeah it's camp and for me you know the highest compliment I can pay a performer when they come off stage is oh you silly bitch you know, that's like the, <laughs> that's the biggest compliment I can give to, oh you're such a silly bitch right and yet at the same time it can be silly and stupid and also yeah like I, I've seen me do raw do that act hundreds of times but at this point and I still get a little tingle in a little, a little tingle a little tingle, <laughs> a little tingle. <laughs> there's something about this I, I just love this idea of breath I, when I was doing my one real foray into the theatre I was um, invited to be in an opera here in Sweden it was completely bonkers this idea of this really wild idea of like Josephine come be in an opera you're a queer cabaret artist so opera should be perfect for you belladrama and weirdness and in order to do it because there was no microphones on this stage in this giant room I was um, afforded the lovely opportunity they, they paid for me to have some voice lessons and voice coaching And to have the privilege of being taught how to measure your intake of breath to the point where now when I'm speaking for long periods of time, especially if I need to elevate my voice in a classroom or speak for a long period of time, I've developed the skill to be able to do that, to be able to use breath, to be able to breathe properly, to be able to, you know, breathe from the stomach through the diaphragm, to be able to, you know, not strain your voice, to be able to project like that. It was one of the most profound skills I've learned as a performer is to learn to sustain your voice when you know you have to do it for a long time. Yeah. And combining those two ideas of needing to speak constantly, but being afforded the opportunity, the little bit of training to be able to continue to breathe through it. Because that's that's the other thing, to breathe through the pain, to breathe through this is Mm. to get through it, right? But in order to be able to do that, you need to have the opportunity. You need to have the space, you need to have the um, support and that idea of breathing together and coming together. I think it's just wonderful. I think for once you've wrapped this up, Josephine, normally it's me who does the beautiful wrapping of the topic up into a nice little sentence with a little bow on top, but it looks like you've done it. Nice. By accident, entirely by accident. I, I will not claim victory. This has been fabulous conversation. What a wonderful insightful content one of the reasons i love doing this podcast so many reasons but i always feel like i'm learning something and this notion of breath and aspiration is i'm definitely taking that with me that's wonderful yeah i have well, i have sarah ahmed to thank for lots of things but definitely definitely we all do that. yes but yeah. the you silly bitch is the one i'm going to thank you for because that's <laughs> what i'm definitely saying to everybody from now on Sarah Ahmed is one of the two queer lectures that I've been to, but from her, I got the hashtag queer nuisance that came from that entire notion of being queer within a space. You queer the space, you're a nuisance, you transform the space by being within it. Mm. And the idea of being a nuisance within the space became a whole thing. So therefore, hashtag queer nuisance. The thing that I love with Ahmed is a lecture on queer use. And in that, there's this beautiful bit about birds who have made a nest in a post box 
there's a sign that's saying you can't use the post box and that sometimes we have to break a thing to make it habitable i think is such a is, is such a like perfect i'm always so jealous of the metaphors I'm like, oh someone else got there first it's such a good metaphor. <laughs> silly bitch yeah, that's... <laughs> Oh, oh my god thank you so much for this conversation what's really weird is that i've just realized that you were saying oh you met in 2014 and i was like i was gone for like seven years at that point and like my am i a generation of queer performance before and it's just like oh my god i'm feeling this this disconnect uh the last um year i've been invited to hopefully perform again and it's going to happen eventually. I've done two or three little things here and there at different conferences, but with any luck, I'll perform again. And I feel like I'm just going to be able to take up some space in that environment. But yeah, it's so wonderful to hear you talking about that again. And you're really inspired. So, all right, to take a deep inhale, perhaps I can say that uh, thank you so much, Dr. Joe and Dr. Jay, for having this conversation. As part of our wrapping up, we always try to talk about what we might talk about next time, which invariably involves the question of whether or not we, as a panel, believe that Keanu Reeves is breathtaking. And I believe we have a common frame of reference for once. Jay is normally our resident expert on telling us why and how Keanu Reeves is breathtaking. Uh, and speaking of breath, and and uh, all these things <laughs> seem to coalesce together in a beautiful uh, moment of of uh, inspiration and aspiration. Jay, would you introduce our moment of Zen? <laughs> <laughs> the John Wick Four trailer. I have never just been watching something and wanted a movie so much. The play forwards, the playbacks, the play sideways. Just that moment where he turns and says, "I need guns." And it's just like, he says it with the same line that he says in The Matrix to Lawrence Fishburne. And you're just like, oh, there's just, there's a, there's a universe of Keanu that plays out in that moment. It's shooty, shooty, bang, bang. Yes, I love it. Oh my God, I cannot wait for it. What else do I need to say? Breathtaking? <laughs> okay dear listener you can't see this a little bit of audio description as jay was doing this i had to retrieve i actually have one of the gold coins from the, from the movie i'm a desperate nerd for things like this what you can't see usually in one of my sort of zoom calls i have this sort of backdrop it's very serene it's a stack of rocks on top of each other but to the left and right of the screen that you can't see is a gigantic pile of ephemera and tat that I have, like and one of them is this beautiful john wick coin which i just adore <laughs> because nice. i'm a terrible nerd for those movies yes they're your shooty bang but they have surprising amounts of decent representation in them for example the non-binary characters there's uh, deaf characters that are prominently featured there's there's all kinds of people in there and it's just like and it's so camp that world is so gay there's something weird. I was just obsessed with the trailer that they had that they're playing Seasons in the Sun in the the, the background song is this weird reimagination of Seasons in the Seasons in the Sun, which is which was amazing. And, and my dad was obsessed with that song weirdly. It's had this kind of weird like dad, daddy, Keanu. Oh God, you know. <laughs> if we're talking about coming together with Keanu. I, mean, <laughs> I think we can safely say we all came together with Keanu. <laughs> There's a really great, um, this is, the, I remember thinking about coming together. There's a great text called Speak Bitterness by Forced Entertainment. And and uh, and it made me, I was thinking about it when we were talking about it, but there's a line they talk about how we slept together in the visionary position, each of us staring across the room from one another. It was something about like continuing hopeless in the idea that even if we come together, we'll never come together at all. And it's kind of really... <laughs> Oh but my anyway, god. That made me think about you know staring at Keanu Reeves and uh, yes. as a game scholar, may I recommend if you ever want to play a game that allows you to not only inhabit Keanu Reeves and have Keanu Reeves inhabit you, play a game called Cyberpunk 2077. It's kind of terrible, but at the same time, you are a, a cyberpunk character who this is the plot. Um, you have a chip inserted in your brain that just so happened to have the engram, the the mind and soul and memory of Keanu Reeves, or a character played by Keanu Reeves, inserted into your brain, and you are slowly becoming Keanu Reeves. Wow. And it's it is chef kiss. What a what a thirsty <laughs> way to end. To end. <laughs>
I'm feeling my breath quicken. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I think we should say goodbye. Thank you again so much, uh, Dr. Jay, Dr. Jay um, and for myself. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again. If you would like to join us in other cyberspaces, <laughs> as long as that cyberspace exists, you might be able to find us on Twitter. At the time of recording, it still is something you can access in the internet. If you were able to access us, you can find us at twitter.com slash itiscomplicated. The last E is removed for reasons. If you don't want to find us there, you can also find us at patreon.com slash itiscomplicated or one word. And if you really feel like sending us a little bit of money, that is a lovely thing because then we use it to pay our guests. People like to oppose them. So we we will. Money. And keep an eye out because we will be moving to Tumblr and Mastodon or Mastodon, whichever way around you say it, because, yes, because we need to exist on social media somewhere. I've got to sit down and figure out which social medias I can manage. I don't think we're quite the Instagram or TikTok space, given that we are a talkie podcast that doesn't change its image at all, apart from occasionally we put with and put the person's name on if we're doing a special episode. I can try and draw something for us, Jay. But in the meantime, dear listener, if you do not wish to join us on those social medias, please do consider joining us once again uh, next time uh, for It Is Complicated, where all good podcasts are sold anywhere in the cyberspaces that you might seek to find us. Thank you again. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Okay, I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> again, do the whole thing again.